Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Ma'ahmaduhu. Wa nusalli ala Rasulihi al-Kareem. Amma ba'ad. We express our gratitude, our praise of Allah Ta'ala. Allah praise gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. May we seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. And so we're continuing Iqbal. Reconstruction, reconstruction of religious thought and rewrite knowledge and religious experience. And so the question you asked was, you know, considering the slow speed through which we are going through this, does every was does every word have that level of significance for something non-divine? Uh, I would say it's entirely up to the author, and it is also up to the reader. So I'll give you what sounds like a silly example. Does every single word matter for Dr. Seuss? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, and so here, uh, I think it's probably fair to assume that in some cases, absolutely, that every word is chosen carefully. Um, uh, in terms of my style of writing, I would have probably written this book very, very differently, a lot more clearly. But this may have been appropriate for academic writing back then. Academic writing today is also often unnecessarily complicated. And, and I think a lot of the points he makes, uh, I think he makes in a language that is so complicated that it's easy to miss the point. Mm-hmm. But he's also not writing this for the layperson. He's, for starters, writing this for academic students. But still, it could be the language choice could be simpler. And, and there's the Stephen King School of Editing, which is take your draft and remove 5%. And, and I think these are lectures anyway, right? Mm-hmm. And so, what's probably built into this is the fact that this is spoken. I think if it's spoken, it makes it even worse. Potentially, but there might be some some rhythm in the text that we're not picking up on because of the speed with which we're reading it, mm-hmm. the slow speed. Um, a lot of the academic texts that I've been reading, they're very repetitive. Like, uh-huh. they have that, like, denseness, but they repeat the same points, like, over and over again. Uh-huh. Um, I would associate that more with speaking than writing, but that's interesting. So, like, for example, this, this text, um, they have a theory, and then they kind of, each paragraph brings it back to, like, that theory. Uh-huh. Um, that sounds like something that's well-organized. Yeah, yeah, it's well-organized. Um, so, compared to that, like, this seems, I feel like in, like, in philosophical musings and things, it's more, there's more... To unpack in each in each word. Yeah, it seems like it. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. Uh, okay, let's continue. It's the bottom page two of the Stanford edition. Okay, go for it. Uh, the search for rational foundations. The search for rational foundations in Islam may be regarded to have begun with a prophet himself. Okay. So there, now we're talking about the search for rational foundations. Oh, what I was asking you to do at the end of the last session was sort of provide an outline for that first paragraph. Mm. Right. Where we're talking about first the questions, and then uh, then we have some brief discussion about the difference between religion, philosophy, and poetry, and saying that poetry is individualistic, philosophy is critical of, of anything, any sort of establishment, and that religion is aiming really, really high. Uh-huh. And then we spoke about the scholastics versus the mystics, because scholastics would be academic people, whereas the mystics are people of experience. They'd be sort of like the Enlightenment empirical philosophers versus the romantics. Right. And then, 
essentially the idea that religion is holistic, whereas the nature of philosophy and academic thought is that it's segmented. That religion is binding you or uniting you with yourself, all your parts with yourself, and yourself within the whole greater reality. But <clears throat> there is a necessity today in our era to have a rational, a strong rational component of religion. That was part of the goal of the scholastics. The scholastics can trace themselves in theory, I believe, back to St. Thomas Aquinas, who, who is trying to create a, a whole organized structure of Catholicism. Okay. And in our tradition, we call them the mutakalimun. Mm -hmm. And they would be the people who are looking at the philosophical underpinnings of Islam, trying to figure out and show how everything fits together. And so he's saying, this, these rational foundations, we can trace this back to the Prophet, peace be upon him. Okay. Did Al-Ghazali precede um, Aquinas? Yeah. Uh, actually, yeah, he had to. Uh, let's look it up really briefly. Yeah, the reason I'm saying that is Aquinas takes a lot from uh, Ibn Rushd, and Ibn Rushd is, is responding to Al-Ghazali a century later, so... So Aquinas, A-Q-I-N-A-S, is, uh, yeah, so Ghazali is from um, like 1059 to 1111, and Aquinas is 1225 to 1274, so about a century later. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, we also talked about... And then, then the Jewish version of this would be Moses Maimonides, who is also doing the same thing, but for Judaism. In what century? Um, and I want to say he's a contemporary of Aquinas. Mm -hmm. um, um, Maimonides. Uh, Moses Maimonides is born 1135, dies 1204. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we also talked about how in the era of the Prophet, it was more of a lived thing and it was not entirely rational like process of embracing Islam. Okay. Um, I'm assuming we're going to get into that, mm -hmm. but like, that's my understanding right now, is that it's, it, it wasn't, when people understood Islam, it wasn't a rational process. Uh, in the sense of trying to rationally make sense of things yeah. and get into high levels of sophistication? Yeah, I probably agree with you. Uh, uh, the key point uh, being that that is not necessarily limited to the experience of Islam to that generation. Uh, so, if you were to interview everybody in Chicago who converted to Islam in the last 10 years, um, you'd probably find something similar. That in terms of the theological side, keeping everything simple, you know, one God, unicity, as opposed to triune God and such. I mean, we're talking about Christians converting to Islam, or a sense of purity, or, and so that would be the extent of the rationalness of it. And then, for a whole lot of people, it, it would be a process of seeking healing. and Or, they're becoming Muslim because a significant other is, is Muslim. Uh, as opposed to someone who's going some, through some thorough uh, rational analysis and then uh, concluding Islam. I think just people in general are not like that. Uh, except for, uh, even within the academy, a few people are like that. Meaning, in the academy, everybody's rational. But in terms of how they love, live their own lives and conduct their own worldview, I think for most people it's not this thorough rational process. Um, one thing that I've been realizing lately 
is this is not like this is kind of related but the fact that religion does not play like a major role in most I would say most Muslims lives in yeah. terms of like their everyday decision making mm-hmm. um, so, I mean, I'd say not an active process but keep right on. yeah not an active process yeah so I don't know where I was going with that. No, sorry, but I like, interrupted you. Yeah. But the fact that it's not like right now, it's like not a rational process of decision making, like navigating life. Yeah, I think. Uh, I think. Well, the question comes down to where is a person's religion located in them? Okay. So, is it part of their costume? Or uniform, uh, I think that is especially for women who cover their hair. Uh, is it part of your or my decision making in terms of the clothing we wear? Probably not. Uh, um, is it for the guy, the Pakistani kid who will dress in a thobe, an Arab thobe? Yeah, probably. You know, and I'm saying whether or not that's actually religion motivating it. Maybe, maybe not. But it's in that conversation. So just like a woman who's covering her hair, uh, is she doing it because of religion? Is she doing it because of peer pressure? Is she doing it because of parental pressure? Don't know. But religion is part of that, you know, that mix. Uh, So uh, I was talking to a friend uh, a couple weeks ago who's a pretty new Muslim. But but she's a bit older. Uh, You know, a lot of converts are like in their 20s. She's older than that. And discussing about Sharia. And I was saying the things that you consider intuitively to be more wholesome will probably line up with the Sharia, right? If you think of Sharia as a path to wholesome behavior, then you will probably be more correct about Sharia more often than not. And so what I'm saying is that that if that is true, and I think it is true, then where is that located? Uh, it's probably not in your frontal cortex in terms of your active decision-making. It's probably uh, somewhere more internal. So saying that uh, Islam may not be part of my active decision-making process, uh, uh, I think it is only when you're actually choosing between right and wrong. But for most of your other decisions, your challenge is not between right and wrong. It might be between ease and difficulty. It might be between efficiency and 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 sloth or something and the more islam can be part of that in the sense of all right me looking at the consequences of it then islam is there somewhere but you see what i'm saying Mm -hmm. it comes down to where in your being is this islam located yeah yeah okay continue his constant prayer was god grant me knowledge of the ultimate nature of things. So this is a good du'a to make. Okay. Allahumma arini haqiqati ashya kamahiya. And so what is he asking for in this prayer? Um, for a vision of reality. Yeah. Show me reality as it is. Meaning, remove all of the filters or lenses that are in my heart that are preventing me from actually seeing reality. Is there a significance to the fact that he said nature of things as opposed to nature of, like, um, 
God? Uh, I think uh, shape uh, is uh, a nice, very simple, generic term. Thing does not necessarily mean physical thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, a thing could be bit of knowledge. And so it is not uncommon with trying to get clo- or not unconnected with trying to get closer to Allah. But I think that is potentially a different prayer. So Musa is saying, can I see you? And the response to that is, no, you're not going to be able to handle it. Okay. But you can look at this mountain and watch the ray hit the mountain. So this is probably a, uh, a dua that's more likely going to get a yes answer. You know, or a more complete yes answer. Because even Musa's request, alayhi salam, was still a yes, but it proceeded with a no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how does this dua relate to rationality? Okay, that was going to be literally my next question. So how would you answer, answer that? Um, I guess you could say that if you're aware of this greater reality, you're actions and your attitudes will reflect that. Okay, but connect with rational. Like it's so like if you have an awareness of God in your day life. Yeah. Then avoiding sins and stuff will be not a passive process, but an active, rational process where you're deciding right. consciously to turn away from something right. that would drive away from God. Okay, I would say all that is correct. Now, think of what he's saying should be the purpose of philosophy based on this dua. So instead of being like a tool of argument, it's a tool of seeking reality, yeah. like religion. Yeah. Um, and so by... Is, yeah. yeah, go ahead. So he's saying, he's basically making that that the tool of philosophy becomes a religious, like a devotional yeah. tool. And then likewise for science, science is a search for reality using its tools. Philosophy is a search for reality using its tools. And then all the different sciences within the umbrella of science, whether we're talking about the hardcore sciences or the human sciences, mm-hmm. they're all searches for reality. And, and so, as opposed to just facts. And so philosophy, without this direction, like you're saying, can be a tool of argument. Or it can be a tool identifying structure of things. But here the actual goal is to connect to, to find greater reality. And this is the rational component of it to use your rational faculties to see reality. That's one dimension of you. Yeah. Did, so, is this, is that meaning that we attribute to that, that right now? Is that what the Sahaba received from it, or is it, did they perceive something different? I think some Sahabas definitely did. I mean, if we think of <clears throat> what is leading someone into Islam, uh, that's one aspect of it. But then what Islam with the Prophet, with the Quran, peace be upon him, is taking them to is reality. So what they're entering Islam with can be Bilal, may Allah be pleased with him, who's being told you have one master. You have Hamza, 
who is on the one hand just there protecting his nephew against Abu Jahl and is also reflecting for a bit on you know his immersion in nature and this sense that there is something bigger. We have Omar who is appreciating the poetry, not the poetry, but the language of the Quran. Okay. Uh, so what is leading people through the door is different things. What's leading Khadija into the door? Her loyalty. Yeah, but even uh, uh, prior to the lo her loyalty to him, you're saying. Uh, I'd say prior to that. His character. Uh, that's what's leading her to, to, to uh, her marriage to him. But I think she's going to her uncle, right? And her uncle, she's telling her uncle, okay, this stuff is happening. Waraka, this stuff is happening. And he's saying, this is a prophet, right? So she's having conviction about him before he even receives wahi. Okay. Uh, through, uh, through her own, she's already has, she's already assessing things and people and such that's leading to the marriage or hiring him and then the marriage. And then listening to what Waraka has to say. And so she is in some ways similar to Abu Bakr, right? Abu Bakr, he hears the prophet's call, he embraces it. And, and Khadija hears the prophet's call before the call comes. I don't know how to send that to, to a voicemail, but uh, Waraka, uh, she hears Waraka's explanation. And so she embraces it. Mm -hmm. But then, uh, by, you know, for everyone else, and Ali is probably also similar, may Allah be pleased with him, that he's hearing the call. And yeah, this is crystal, crystal clear for me. And in Sunni tradition as much, we may not give him as much due attention because he's so young at the time, right? But then now once everyone's in the soup of the community, now they're all being directed towards reality, especially the ayat of Mecca. You know? Like here's how reality really operates. We also mentioned last time that it was a lot of them trusted him. In terms of what's leading them into the door? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That if someone else said any of these, said all the same things, they would probably not trust them as much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that, especially for others uh, uh, whom we don't give as much prominence to their personality, yeah, I think it's their, their trust, love for him. Uh -huh. yeah. Uh -huh. I was thinking about this recently. So, um, I, I was just like thinking about like the celebrity, you know, stuff. And I was like, I wonder what the situation like what what situation was like when like Tarikas were like super common. Mm -hmm. And it kinda like terrified me in a way. Explain further why. Just because like um from my understanding of power dynamics were different than from my understanding of tradition mm -hmm. now. Meaning things were are more democratic now? Yeah. Yeah. And it was like oh my god. Uh I would say uh, your fears are probably justified uh, about people in the past, but I also suspect <clears throat> uh, another difference is that one of the consequences today of the democratization of people is also the declawing of people. You know, so we have less recourse uh, to do something uh, about abuse except to shout. Whereas in previous generations, you may also be pulling out a sword. See what I'm saying? So, uh, 
So overall, I'm saying we would think that people had more power back then, but I'd also suggest ways people are kept in check was probably also more forceful, I think. So I'll know the best. The work of later mystics and non-mystic rationalists forms an exceedingly instructive chapter in the history of our culture, inasmuch as it reveals a longing for a coherent system of ideas, a spirit of wholehearted devotion to truth, as well as limitations of the age, which rendered the various theological movements in Islam less fruitful than they might have been in a different age. Okay, so as is uh, my, my comment about my style of writing versus his, um, many of the paragraphs I would probably flip, and then many of the sentences I'd probably flip. So if we look at the second half of this sentence, what are we saying? There is this longing for a coherent system of ideas. So all these scattered things that are in the common Muslim's mind, mm -hmm. defining their Islam, one of the goals of the, he's saying, the, the Sufis, as well as the Mutakalimun, the Sufis being the mystics and the non-mystic rationalists, the Mutakalimun, is to figure out how to put it all together. So the Mutakalimun would use the tools that we regard as philosophy to show it all fit together. And the Sufis would begin with the heart and connect everything to the heart. Good. But the point, the, co the goal is cohesion, as opposed to being scattered and then a spirit of wholehearted devotion to truth. And this is akin to what I'm saying, that what we're inferring here is that the goal of philosophy should be the search for reality, change the word reality to truth. If you use the word truth, then a lot of people in the realm of philosophy will, will find that more appealing. But then some will say, how do we know there is truth, and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. So the inception here is that there is truth. As well as the limitations of the age, which rendered the various uh, theological movements in Islam less fruitful. Okay, and so he's also, what I'm inferring here is he's also saying the systems that they created back then uh, would work for that era, mm -hmm. but they don't work today. So this goes back to the point of reconstruction, that we have to do the same exercise. And you've probably heard from me many times, every generation has to do this. Yeah. Right. Okay, let's continue. Um, oh, yeah. Question. So I came um, asking about like truth and like seeking truth mm -hmm. a while ago, and you suggested finding something more concrete. Yeah. Um, how does that play out in like in the realm of mysticism and philosophy? So there, I think the difference is, uh, uh, I, if I remember correctly, in your search, it's a search if there's a truth, and then if there's a truth, how do I figure it out? Here they're saying, we already know where the truth is. How do we fit everything else with it? Mm -hmm. See what I'm saying? So they're sort of like on step two. Okay. So your version of what they're doing would be, they would be trying to prove that this is truth. And they're not, uh, what he's speaking about here in this moment, I don't believe that's what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. As we all know, Greek philosophy has been a great cultural force in the history of Islam. Okay, so that point's straightforward, right? Yeah. Yep. I mean, if there's no Aristotle, Islam would be very different. And a translation of like, texts and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yet, a careful study of the Quran and the various schools of scholastic theology that arose under the inspiration of Greek thought 
disclose the remarkable fact that while Greek philosophy very much broadened the outlook of Muslim thinkers, it, on the whole, obscured their vision of the Qur'an. Okay, what's he saying here? Now he's uh, one of the ETF. He's saying that even though it opened up perspectives that were not visible to people before, I'm assuming like in the lens of rationality, mm -hmm. um, it closed off mm -hmm. uh, pathways of understanding through the Qur'an. Yeah. So he's saying Greek thought has been almost central to the development of Islamic thought over the years, over the centuries. Mm -hmm. uh, and so good has come from it. It's stretched our minds. But it's also obscured our approach to the Quran. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about that? Um, is it is it would it be true to say that Greek philosophy is very rational? Uh, I think so. What else could we say or would we say? I don't think we could say anything else. Okay. Um, yeah. So, like, the vision of the Qur'an is, at times, non-rational. Yes. Um, so, I think this is true of my situation, too, is that, depending on rationality, uh, and reconciling that with, like, faith, which is what the Qur'an requires from you, mm -hmm. is, is a difficult balance, and he's saying that Greek philosophy made them over-reliant on rationality. Perhaps, yeah. I think that's probably a good assessment. Yeah. At the cost of the other aspects. Right. And that's probably the Sufi pushback on a lot of these things in the same way that the Romantics push back on the empirical philosophers. Like, it's almost like saying you've taken the pendulum too far uh -huh. in this direction. Yeah. Now, the, the catch here <clears throat> is that this is easy to turn into a slogan. Mm. So if you read Milestones by Sayyid Qutb, Mm -hmm. using much simpler and more provocative language, far less sober language. Um, that's the essence of that book. Like he's saying, the fall of the Muslim world is because we've gotten disconnected from the Quran. And he uses, you know, very, very catchy language, like the kind you'd hear, like in a fiery sermon. Mm -hmm. And so for a young person, that becomes super attractive. And that's not exactly what Iqbal is saying. Iqbal is saying that, okay, there is rational thought here, and it's beneficial, and we and he's not even saying we have to throw it out, but he's saying we have an over-reliance on it. Mm -hmm. And and so so the point is that it's easy to misread or to simplify what Iqbal, what Iqbal is saying. No. Okay, let's continue. Socrates concentrated his attention on the human world alone. To him, the proper study of man was man uh, and not the world of plants, insects, and stars. Okay, so that's uh, a big point, number one. That a lot of philosophy, you know, which we trace back to Socrates, it's focused on us. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's true of all the uh, Platonic dialogues. But then, what about everything else? Plants, planets, etc. Okay. Keep going. Um, why is that such a big deal? Well, look at the next sentence. Okay. How unlike the spirit of the Quran, which sees in the humble bee a recipient of divine inspiration and constantly calls upon the reader to observe the perpetual change of the winds, the alternation of day and night, the clouds, the starry heavens, and the planets swimming through infinite space. Okay. Exclamation so mark. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> nice. Uh, I didn't notice the exclamation mark. 
So explain what uh, Iqbal is trying to say here, or seems to be saying. He's saying that um, understanding a human or understanding humankind, you can't. In order to understand humankind, you can't isolate it from its environment. And Which therefore, because um, therefore, I would say because yeah. the environment informs his relationship with the divine. Mm-hmm. So thus, if we connect this with the, his critique of Greek thought, what is he saying? That the result of the consequence of Greek thought immersing itself into our tradition uh, is that we focus on humans as though we are out of place in the world. Mm-hmm. And there's a portion of that that is true. Right, because there's a portion of us that is not of this world. But now think of all the consequences that come from that. That if I'm not out of place in this world, then everything else in this world is of less value uh, to the point that it's almost irrelevant. So, kind of like a human exceptionalism. Yes, exactly. But at the same time, humans are exceptional. Humans are definitely exceptional. Uh, But using the example of the bee... We're saying the bee is also exceptional. Mm-hmm. And so this plant, which I'm not taking care of, you know, it, you know, it looks like a jungle, uh, is also exceptional. And so are humans exceptional, exceptional? Sure. But the point being that everything else is also exceptional. Every single element of creation is also exceptional. And now take this to its full conclusion, or part of its the full conclusion is that then for faith, we are often looking for the miraculous. and Or change the word miraculous to the exceptional. Yet the message of the Quran is that you are surrounded by the exceptional. You just have to open your eyes and see. So then there's the ayah. Uh, what is the ayah? It's after the ayahs of abrogation. Um, what is abrogation again? Abrogation is nasikh wal mansukh. Woman, um, it's basically it's you take something, and it expires by being replaced by something else. Keep خبير. I heard it. Was that the same place? What's next? Yeah. yeah. So what are we saying here? Those people who have no knowledge are saying, why doesn't Allah tell us speak to us or why doesn't he give us a sign? Mm-hmm. Okay. And what does it say after that? That okay, they they're saying the same things as people before have said their hearts are all alike. And so these people are saying, I need a sign. Give me a sign that this is true. And then, then Allah tells us what? That, you know, the signs are there for those who know. And what are we saying? Put it connecting with this. 
the, the signs are everywhere. So the signs of God are in this plant. Appreciate the beauty and the complexity of this plant. And appreciate how it fits into the whole system. And as a consequence of that appreciation, appreciate its creator. And so when the Quran is very frequently making reference to nature, it's saying, go immerse yourself and look at it. But the consequence of this rational approach, it's not just rational, it's rational human-centric approach. And, and the result of that is that, we, that the plant becomes effectively what it is here, which is a decoration. And so the trees that we plant around campus become decorations, as opposed to being part of a unified system. So what's the consequence that of that on like, when that becomes widespread in the Muslim Ummah, what's the consequence of that on like, your prospects for salvation? So I think a few things happen. <clears throat> By restricting your views, because that's sort of what he's saying, right? The, he's using the word obscure. I'm using the word restricting. Uh, you're restricting uh, the experience and witnessing of the Rahmah of Allah Ta'ala, which means that you're potentially restricting your connection to Allah Ta'ala. You know, you're shrinking it tremendously. And so where does it play out most? Just in law. Okay. Uh, and, you know, what do I need to do to get salvation? What do I need to do, period? Okay. Five yeah. pillars? Yeah. And so as opposed to this experience where you are immersed in this environment and every aspect is a connection point between you and Allah Ta'ala. You obviously have to obey, okay? uh, but isn't he telling us to go and look into all these things? Okay. So I'm saying you're basically restricting what you have of, of your connections with Allah Ta'ala. So if a person is born in the end times when like no one has that capacity or like very few people have that capacity how what how if it's such a prevalent attitude how is a person supposed to develop that appreciation yeah, it's it's easier and harder uh, depending on the generation a person's in but it's also easier or harder depending upon the environment a person's raised in mm-hmm. So imagine being raised in the house of the Prophet peace be upon him, versus being raised in the house of Abu Jahl. Yeah. Automatically, it's a yeah. it's a different situation, you know. And you'll be judged according to your circumstance and your choices. And so, just like we are taught that, you know, if someone is is reading or reciting uh, the Quran, then they're getting X amount of reward. But if they're doing with difficulty, they get double reward. Allah Ta'ala has his own system of fairness. Uh, 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 for these things but the point is that you are going to feed off of what your environment is and so if you're in an environment full of nature your experience with the divine will probably be different than if you are in an environment where it's all a concrete jungle but it doesn't mean that the person in nature is automatically going to be a better Muslim and the person who's in an urban environment is not going to be um 
but I am saying that the person in nature has more opportunities there. So statistically? I would suspect that the person in nature will have more Islam in them, yeah. As a true disciple of Socrates, Plato despised sense perception, which in his view yielded mere opinion and no real knowledge. Okay, so let's translate what that is. Uh, I haven't taken Plato since freshman year. No, so just look at the sentence and forget the names. Okay. Um, so sense perception is that rational human-centered orientation? Yes. Yeah, so that's... Sense perception is what science is if you move beyond just, you know, uh, seeing, tasting, smelling, touching, and what else? Hearing. Okay. And then you add equipment to expand your seeing, you expand your hearing, all that stuff. And so Plato is saying, um, that's not really giving you reality. Because uh -huh. he's speaking of reality as something beyond that realm. Like beyond. the ideal, like shadow yes. world. Yeah. So beyond this physical realm, there is this ideal world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, in his view, what was the pathway to, to, to perceive that ideal world? So, first is to understand that there is an ideal world. So it's kind of like saying Socrates is, is in this in text, Socrates is a materialist. Mm -hmm. That's all there is, that's all that matters, and he doesn't really take the uh, the realm beyond very seriously, because it's the story of all these gods that are just fooling around fighting each other and mm -hmm. making no sense. And, and Plato is saying, there is this realm of purity, whereas this world is sort of like the realm of corruption. In this pure realm, that's where reality is. Okay, now look what does the Qabal say? How unlike the Qur'an, which regards hearing and sight as the most valuable divine gifts and declares them to be accountable to God for their activity in this world. Okay, so what is he saying? He's saying that this material world has value. This material world not only has value, it is your pathway. It is a primary pathway to God. Mm -hmm. okay. So it does yield real knowledge. Yeah. And this is an experience that I have with some students that start veering into atheism is in, or some students that are veering into agnosticism is that they've placed themselves in this ideal realm that is not of this material world. And they see this material world is all beaten, broken, corroded and such. Mm -hmm. And we're saying, no, the dirt that is putting this, that this plant is in is valuable, is a pathway to appreciating all the talent. Okay. to getting connected to the teachings of Allah Ta'ala. So, apply that to, like, large-scale trauma. Uh -huh. um, how do you reconcile that? Trauma especially, isn't it? Isn't pain uh, automatically creating a yearning? Uh, yeah, I'm saying it is. Now, the yearning, you might as a result of trauma, whether we're speaking about at the individual level or at the mass level, uh, if it's at the individual level, you may turn to the wrong place to feed that yearning. And, and so I have students who, who are, have been you know, victims or survivors of sexual violence. And uh, in some of their cases, in terms of intimacy, 
with with a spouse they're not capable because they've blocked it off in other cases they cannot find satiation because they want so much right uh, or think of someone who is uh, smoking completely different case from the the, uh, the survivor sexual violence but someone who is smoking to fulfill a need whether they're talking about tobacco or marijuana and so there's this saying that's finally becoming popular that marijuana is not the gateway drug it's that internal unmet need that's the gateway drug and then they're turning to marijuana like self-medication basically. it becomes a type of self-medication right and so what we're saying at the core pain is a type of yearning whose salve is only going to come through Alatala. Now, it doesn't mean that, okay, it's only going to come through prayer, but these are all doorways within us through which we're yearning to connect to Alatala. And so what is one of the lessons of fasting? Fasting, you're experiencing the yearning of hunger, which is giving you a taste of yearning to help you relearn how to seek or how to want to seek Allah Ta'ala. And so that yearning is a different yearning uh, in the general, in a specific sense from the yearning of pain. Uh, even let's say, you know, you, you hurt your leg. Okay, that's a pain and you're yearning for healing. And so we're saying your essence is your yearning. And now look into the world as a way to connect to the, your creator. But if it's widespread trauma, then that yearning is probably being fed by oppression. So, like, when you say fed by oppression, you mean you mean the the, the, the yearning is being fulfilled by oppression, or is? I mean, it's uh, the illusion of being fulfilled, and so okay, go to uh, like the south side of Chicago, the west side of Chicago, and you'll have trouble finding a bookstore and you'll find numerous churches and you'll find numerous liquor stores. Okay. Uh, that's not a coincidence. And it's not that people in the South Side and West Side Chicago don't want to learn. And it's not that they don't want belief, but these are special tools of complete expo of further exploitation. You know, the proliferation of these things. And sometimes the churches and, the, and those liquor stores are owned also by African-Americans that are cannibalizing their own people, you know. If not, they're sometimes run by daisies. I get the food liquor stores, but the oh. churches too. Yeah, aren't they? You know. Because if it's giving you belief, but it's making you docile, as opposed to calling upon you to change, not just your condition. So it'll often be calling upon you to change your condition but it's often not calling you to change the condition of your society. I'd say it's the same thing. Not the same thing, I'd say it's a better version. It's a healthier version. Yeah. I don't know much about black churches in the South Side, but are there any that practice a version of like liberation theology? Or that? Yeah, we would call that the prophetic gospel. Yeah. So the prophetic gospel is all about, is, is liberation theology and, and changing the condition of the people. And that is also, we have some of that in Chicago, too. Yeah. So you're saying that that's the minority in yeah. communities that need it? That's a very small minority, yeah. yeah. So. Do you think mosques keep us docile? Yeah, totally. 
mosques in Chicago are more identity preservation centers. And, and so the success is the preservation of the identity. You know, and the failure is the loss of, of what they perceive to be identity. Now, as my generation starts taking over, uh, we'll see what directions things take, but it seems to me that it'll be focused much more on assimilation as an ideal. And I'm saying all this in contrast to the ideal being getting closer to Allah Ta'ala. Meaning, which then means what the primary purpose of the administrator of the mosque is to figure out how to fill up the rows you know, at prayer time. And so all the other activities you do should be there to fulfill the fill up the roles, the rows. So whether you're having a coffee shop or basketball or or, or other programming, the the goal should be to fill up the rows, as opposed to having all these things for the sake of constructing community, because mm. it's an artificial construction of community, mm -hmm. right? Because we're all gathering here, we're not gathering in each other's homes, mm -hmm. right? And you see the MSA too. Yeah, I mean, think of the MSA or another way to frame this is uh, the dominance of a consumer approach to religion versus a service approach to religion. So MSA cannot almost not be consumer-based. Let's have programming that'll get people to come. Okay. Uh, because if we did, if everything we do is service projects, that's like ideal in the theory, but how many people are going to show up for that on a regular basis? And so it's kind of like what I'm trying to, the way I'm trying to, form it is that MSA is the consumer aspect and then my programming becomes more the service aspect okay. uh, which could or potentially it's, it's not to override or contradict what the MSA is doing right now most of it is learning you know but you know uh, service is more likely going to be a place where you can connect to all the dollar than consumption because how many lectures does a person need to hear? At some point, yeah. you've heard everything you need to hear. Yeah. And I think that happens very, very quickly. I mean, this is part of the reason my chutpahs are almost identical, you know, every single week. Because what can I say to you you haven't already heard? You know? And so, <clears throat> so now make that a whole widespread thing that a lot of Islam is focused on consumption. And then connect with the, connect with the celebrity culture. That is a consumption process. Uh, um, approach. I kind of just want to experience like life pre like Adam Smith. I, I just want to like. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe this all goes back to Adam Smith. You know, maybe. I'm just like, at this point, I'm just curious. Like, how? What other model is there? Um, yeah. But I mean, that's essentially akin to what he's talking about here. He's saying it's there in the text. You know, it's just we have to, we have a certain set of filters we don't even realize we have. Mm -hmm. So, okay, well, let's, uh, what time are we at? Uh, okay, let's stop right here and chill. Okay. And so we are at the sentence How unlike the Quran, which regards hearing and sight as the most valuable divine gifts and declares them to be accountable to God for their activity in this world. And we'll start right there and show us about the middle, at that footnote 12, uh, page 3. Okay, subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika, nashidu wa la ilaha illa anta, nastafiru kuna tubi ilayk wa akhir da'wana, alhamdulillah, ya rabbil alameen.